Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Zechariah. As we approach this new book, it really follows suit that it would follow Haggai. Um, As we looked at that last week, just two little chapters. It's kind of amazing, 38 verses. Haggai was a short-winded but powerful uh, prophet. And Zechariah is kind of the opposite. He's he's powerful, but he's very long-winded. Where Haggai is the guy running around with a tape measure and just very logical. He's kind of your more... Uh, engineering kind of mind, whereas Zachariah is more the mystical, mysterious, um, and he's got all these dreams and what have you. <clears throat> and it's, it's very apocalyptic, uh, Zachariah's uh, prophecy is. It's got a lot of darkness, like Haggai. We, we showed that last time, just the heavy nature of the prophecy. But um, some of the background of, of Zachariah, before we dive into this book, uh, the first thing is his name, Zachariah. It means whom the Lord remembers. And I, I love that um, because the Lord doesn't forget. You and I, we forget. Um, it's amazing sometimes the things you forget. And you're like, man, how did I forget that? Um, but the Lord, he never forgets. He'll never have to apologize. Say, oh man, I forgot about you. Sorry about that, my bad. It's like, that's not the Lord, that's, that's humanity. Um, and you know, in Israel's history, there were times where I'm pretty sure Israel felt forgotten. And one of those times was the, probably that, you know, 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And Zechariah lives during a time where he was born in captivity in Babylon and would later make his way to Jerusalem and give his prophecy there in Jerusalem. Kind of the opposite of Daniel. If you remember, Daniel started out in Jerusalem. Then, uh, you know, uh, the Babylonians came in 586, crushed Jerusalem and Daniel and the guys Actually, Daniel was taken in an earlier wave, but he was taken from Jerusalem and gave his prophecy while in Babylon. So Zechariah uh, does the opposite of that. But as it turns out, they're both very apocalyptic books. In fact, we're gonna see how Daniel and Zechariah have some real similarities um, and what have you. But the thing I love, even even in the time of Israel's captivity, uh, I like that Zechariah is the one. His name, meaning whom the Lord remembers. The Lord never forgot Israel. He never forsook Israel. And that's something maybe you feel sometimes where you feel forgotten by the Lord. But don't don't, um, sell the Lord short. He always remembers. I love that story of Noah on the ark. And he was on the ark. Uh, you know, for over, just over a year, if you do the math, by the way, uh, how many, you, know, you say, I thought it was 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long it rained. It rained like in Oregon, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, have you felt that lately? It seems like that lately, but, uh, but, uh, but it, you know, so that you say, well, that's no big deal. Well, there's enough rain uh, and whatever water coming up to flood the whole earth. But, but man, I wonder if Noah felt forgotten there on the ark, you know, floating around. About halfway through that, in about 150 years, Noah, um, the Bible says, and God remembered Noah. And I always laugh because it's like, oh, my, I forgot. Uh, like, did he forget? Does that mean God forgot Noah, the one guy that's alive on the earth? It's like, oh yeah, my bad, I forgot Noah. He's floating out there. I better do something about that guy. Um, <laughs> no, the Lord, the Lord, the idea when it says, and God remembered Noah, it means that he never forgot him. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's Genesis 8.1, by the way. So keep that in mind. I love Psalm 8.4, where it says, you know, what is man that thou art mindful of him? or the son of man that thou visitest him. Um, you know, it's amazing the Lord remembers us at all or thinks about us at all. That's what the psalmist is, you know, rhetorically asking this question. How is it that God remembers anything about us? 
But um, I love that he's very specific, like there in Genesis 8, 1, where it says, and God remembered Noah and every living thing that, and all the cattle that was with them in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the winds assuaged. You might be in a dark time, just, just remember this, that um, God remembered Noah. And by the way, one of the phrases in Genesis I also love is where it says, and Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. God remembered Noah and he, and he found grace. That's what God does for you. You might feel punished, abandoned, uh, betrayed, let go, but I love how God um, always remembers us and he never lets us go. You might be in an ark season feeling confined. Things stink, uh, your life stinks. I wonder if the ark stank. Maybe the Lord just did a miraculous uh, ventilation uh, in the ark, but I have a hunch it smelled bad. But um, uh, as a young farming kid, uh, but, but God remembers you and he knows what you're going through. And so that's kind of a thing just to remember out of Zechariah that God remembers. And that's gonna be something Zechariah will remind the children of Israel that I have not forgotten you, uh, nor have I forsaken you. Now, don't be confused. There's actually 30 different Zacharias in the Bible. Did you know that? There's a lot of Zacharias, So you can easily be confused. But this one has a few marks on his life that stand out. Um, how do we identify what Zechariah we're talking about. Well, the biggest identification is who Zechariah is, uh, is related to. And so let's start out this, this chapter one. It says in Zechariah chapter one, verse one, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of uh, Berechiah, the son of Ido, uh, the prophet, saying, now, before we get into what was said there, this really identifies which Zechariah we're talking about. Um, now, by the way, remember in the Bible, in the Hebrew, the word, there's not really a word that's very much used for the word grandfather. That's only a word we have. Um, they, in the Bible, they kind of call the, normally the Hebrew is more descriptive than English. One of those words we're more descriptive is who our father and our grandfathers are. In the Bible, it's just father. Um, like when they, the Bible calls Bel, uh, Bel, Belshazzar uh, his father, Nebuchadnezzar. It was actually his grandfather, technically, but the Bible's not making a mistake there. That's just the way they handle it. He's the father of him and the father of him. And he just goes through the begets and all that. But Zechariah, the son of uh, Berechiah, uh, uh, and also Idu or Ido, um, this, this Zechariah, um, it, it means that he was number one, he was a priest. Um, one of the few uh, Bible authors that's actually a priest from being a priest in the temple. Uh, Zechariah was a priest because uh, his grandfather, Idu, was a priest. Uh, and you read that in Nehemiah 12, 4 and 16. Um, and uh, so this Zechariah, you could say, is arguably the most famous of the Zacharias in the sense that um, he's quoted 71 times in the New Testament. That's pretty radical for a minor prophet to be quoted 71 times. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and by the way, one of the things about Zechariah that's uh, important to understand is a lot of people read this book and say, man, this is one of those weird books. What's the deal? Has Zechariah been smoking weed? Uh, some people might say that because it is a little weird. It's like, wow, Zechariah, whoo, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What's going on with Zechariah? Well, no. He is a mystic, he's mysterious, and he has these dreams and visions. And the Lord does that by his spirit. You say, well, I don't like that, but you gotta remember, this is, this is the fun part of the Bible. Um, there's an old saying, you know, the, that which is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. 
So um, one of the fun things we get to do is read the book of Zechariah. And, and most people first glance like, man, what in the world is this about? But a lot of the answers come from where Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament, those 71 times that I'm referring to. And so it makes it kind of fun when you read the book of Zechariah to kind of decode what's being said there. Um, but um, one third of the quotes of Zechariah are quoted in the gospels uh, by the gospel writers of Zechariah. Um, but uh, his number one book that he's quoted in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation quotes Zechariah 31 times. So uh, you might say, you know, one of the things we always say as Bible prophecy buffs is, uh, you know, Daniel's the key that unlocks the book of Revelation and, and Re book of Revelation is the key that unlocks Daniel. But you might throw Zechariah in the mix of those as well as a, a book that's sort of mysterious. It's very apocalyptic, very much end times oriented. Um, both the end times and a local application, like we saw in Haggai and, other, and some of the other prophets, we're gonna see both a local application of his time period, but mostly we're gonna see uh, futuristic, apocalyptic uh, kinds of things, local and apocalyptic in the book of Zechariah. So keep your eye out for that. Remember, that's that thing, a dual fulfillment of prophecy we've talked about, where there's an immediate maybe application of a lesser sort, but then there's a greater application in a futuristic worldview, kind of, whole world kind of uh, application. Um, one of the things that's fun about Zechariah's prophecies is it's not just apocalyptic in the sense of end times, but it's very messianic. That is just a fancy word that we use saying the Old Testament writing about Jesus. And there's very specific prophecies that Zechariah is gonna say about the first coming of Christ, which are kind of uh, interesting things, along with the second coming, both prophecies, first coming and, and second coming. Also, like the book of Daniel, uh, Zechariah really confounds the critics, and I love that. You know, those Bible skeptics, those guys that say, well, we, have, we know the book of Daniel's a forgery because how could he write things about the future with such accuracy? And we, we say, because God knows the beginning from the end. God knows the future, and it's super easy for us to figure that out. But they have twisted and contorted things to try to figure out ways that the book of Daniel's a forgery. Well, they did the same thing for a long time with the book of Zechariah um, because of some of the very specific messianic prophecies about Jesus. Um, so they said, well, the book of Zechariah must be dated after Jesus came on the earth. But we know that the book of Zechariah has very specific dating of 520 BC. And it's very clearly written, even in our first verse here, when it says in the eighth month, in the second month, um, you know, um, uh, of, the, of the year Darius uh, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah. So we know very, and by the way, both Haggai and, um, and Zechariah uh, are very specific on dates. We'll talk about that maybe in a second. But, um, but we know that it was 520. Now, if you don't believe that, you say, well, it must've been written after Christ. And again, let me see if anybody was listening in the book of Daniel. What's the easiest argument um, for defending the book of Zechariah's not being dated at the time after Christ? Right, the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and, and it, it includes Zechariah. Um, um, and the Septuagint predates Jesus by 233 years. And, um, and we, even the most uh, calloused of atheists have to admit, the Septuagint, we, we all have to agree, we know when that was written. Uh, and there's no argument there, 233 
233 years before Jesus came, the Septuagint was written. And guess what books nicely tucked away in Greek translation there? The book of Zechariah. And by the way, um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were, was another um, amazing find because these critics would always say, well, the book of Zechariah or Isaiah or Daniel that we have right now is nothing like the, you know, the old one. It's been you know, tweaked and people have added stuff and that's how they get these prophecies. And there's two or three or four, you know, Isaiah's who wrote the book of Isaiah. And there's all this stuff, the twisting of scripture that they're trying to do. But, um, but one of the greatest uh, things, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, when they found them, which also very much predate Jesus's time period, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls um, shows uh, uh, an exact, there's only one difference in the book of Zechariah you and I have right now and the book of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that is chapter eight and nine are combined into one chapter. Well, that should make me lose my faith. I think I'm gonna, uh, because chapter eight and nine are combined into one, that should be, a, that's a showstopper. Uh, no, the chapters aren't even inspired. The, the chapters were added later. Uh, I'm thankful for chapters, but it's just so funny. Uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls once again confirm the Bible we have today is accurate and it's exactly uh, what it was back in those days. Um, so some would argue that there's, um, there's more messianic prophecy in Zechariah than all the other minor prophets combined. Uh, so if you break down the book of Zechariah, chapters one through six, um, it's a, an interesting experience from one night that Zechariah has. Uh, chapters one through six, um, it's, we're going to see eight visions uh, or dreams, you might call them. Visions or dreams, which one is it? Uh, well, you be, the, you be the judge as we read this. He's going to have eight visions or dreams. Now, some people say there are 10 visions or dreams, um, and you'll see maybe why as we get into some of these. But minimally, there's eight visions and dreams that Zachariah's gonna have in one night. Um, and basically, um, uh, verses one through six is an introduction, um, and it's a call to repentance, uh, where Zachariah is calling the people of Israel to repent for their sins. In fact, uh, uh, the old uh, preacher G.L. Robinson said this, one of the strongest and most intense calls to repentance is found in verses two through six of Zechariah chapter one. Um, so it's a pretty intense call to repentance. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the time period, same as Haggai, 520 BC, um, they're starting to rebuild the temple. Um, and uh, the date, of course, 520, we, we actually have the, the actual you know, general vicinity. It says, you know, basically the eighth month in the second year. Now remember the lunar calendar is different than our Gregorian calendar. So it, it's either October or November of our calendar, um, exactly two months. Remember how uh, Haggai had uh, different sermons that he gave? Well, um, this is two months after Haggai's first sermon. Uh, if you remember, we went through the months of Haggai's sermons, October, December, if you remember that last Wednesday night. Well, after Haggai's first sermon, uh, two months after that, Zechariah gave this uh, eight vision uh, you know, uh, prophecy. So they're contemporaries of each other um, um, and they're, they're preaching really the same thing. Well, Brett, why don't we just use one of them instead of both of them? What I love about Haggai and Zechariah, like I mentioned earlier, is how different they are. Um, Zechariah, I already said, is the mystic and he's long-winded. You know, we've got 14 chapters here. Uh, Haggai gave us two chapters. Uh, there's a big difference right there. Haggai's no-nonsense, to-the-point kind of guy, sort of kick-you-in-the-pants kind of guy. That's, that's Haggai. 
Whereas Zechariah is more mystical, cryptic, meditative, and maybe says, come with me and I'll show you the deeper things of God's kingdom. Like that's, that's the kind of Zechariah guy Zechariah was. And God uses people in different ways. Can I remind you of this? This is something that I'm, I've, the Lord put on my heart this afternoon that I think the church needs to be real careful because the Lord uses different kinds of people. And, and you might even say, you know, they, the Lord uses different kinds of ministries. And you'll hear me call out false ministries and false doctrine and false teaching. That's different. But one thing you have to be really careful about is just because somebody has a different personality, <clears throat> maybe a personality you don't even like, doesn't mean necessarily that they're gonna be wrong. I wonder if, if we lived in today and Zachariah and Ezra, you know, Ezra Nehemiah, Zachariah, Haggai, I wonder, if, wonder how they would all think of each other today or act like each other. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Do you remember the difference between those two guys? They were both contemporaries of each other. Um, what happened when people wouldn't repent? Well, if you remember Ezra, when he'd see people unrepentant of their sins, he would pull out his beard and grieve as he's pulling out the hairs of his beard. And those of you that have beards, no, that's not a pleasant thing to do. But that's what Ezra does. Does anybody remember what Nehemiah went around doing? He ran around pulling out everybody else's beards. Uh, Nehemiah, you're not gonna repent, oh yeah, you're right. He chased everyone, pulled their beards out. Like that was Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are very different people. Um, if those two guys live today, I'm pretty sure Ezra would do a podcast, The Rise and Fall of Nehemiah, and, um, and would be really upset about how Nehemiah was so brutal. And, um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and, and it'd be, it'd be, all the people that were more Ezra-esque would go, yeah, that's the true ministry, where Nehemiah's running around just pulling people's beards out. Well, that's horrible. That's not the love of Jesus. Yeah, but God used Nehemiah and Jesus turned tables of the temple too. And like, it's funny how people, uh, just because it's their own personality, they sort of wanna superimpose, well, they're right or they're wrong. You know, even Paul and Barnabas, I see this in the church today. There's some people that are more Paul, some people are more Barnabas. Paul was given the responsibility with the grand scheme of things. He was starting the church. That's like, that's a huge deal. He was traveling the world, starting the church. And if it wasn't for Paul traveling the world, uh, going into cities and risking his life and limb, um, we, we wouldn't have seen the church grow from Jerusalem to Judea and then all the way into Europe and even into Rome, where after Rome, it scattered through all the whole world. That was Paul who did that. Barnabas, on the other hand, didn't have that kind of ministry. He was called the son of consolation. And Barnabas and Paul had an argument, a disagreement when it came to John Mark. And Paul said, get John Mark out of here. I, I don't have time for this, this guy. And Barnabas was like, yeah, but I love John Mark. And, and, and what happened? Uh, well, it seems that John, Mark, and Paul had a huge disagreement and they went their separate ways. Um, but Barnabas sort of nursed John Mark back to health and, and sort of cared about him as a son of consolation, a comforter. And he was more of a one-on-one -on -one discipleship kind of guy. That was Barnabas. Paul, I don't have time for that. Well, which one was right, Barnabas or Paul? The answer, both. Paul had to do the grand scheme of things. Barnabas was more of a, a, a guy who ministered one-on-one. -on -one. Thank the Lord for both of those guys. And I'm glad you, God uses different people. Peter was loud and obnoxious. John was relational and spiritual, um, but both of them had a really cool place in, the, in, the, in Jesus's plan. So be careful when it comes to this whole thing where the, we, we're, it's, it's po popular to have a podcast about this or that, or, and, and we see different behaviors. If they're doing things doctrinally wrong, well, yeah, we need to call that out, or, or you know, uh, essential doctrines especially. Those are fighting words. But when it comes to just different flavors and personalities and stuff like that, I think we should be a little more careful. Um, by the way, uh, if you read Romans 12 on the giftings of the spirit within the congregation, there are different kinds of people. 
And there are different roles and different uh, callings upon each person. And thank the Lord, that makes up the body of Christ, which is a very unique and diverse kind of group of people. In my own life, I'm thankful that I've got the more comforting, consoling people that I can go to and be encouraged. But I'm also thankful I have people that are kind of kick you in the pants kind of people too. Um, and those two people don't always get along, but I'm thankful for both of them. And uh, the Lord uses both of those. That's, that's very much Zachariah and Haggai. Both contemporaries probably knew each other. Were they friends? I doubt it. Uh, I don't picture Haggai hanging with Zachariah, going, man, you're too weird. Uh, get out of tape measure, you know, or whatever. I, I don't know, maybe, but they, they had the similar calling at, a similar, at the same time, same exact time. But they're both calling to repentance. Uh, and that's kind of the deal there. Um, so, so that's kind of the deal. Let's, let's go on in verse two. It says, um, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore, say thou unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn to you, saith the Lord of hosts. I like how it repeats this over. Does, does that remind you of someone who's saying, saith the Lord of hosts, let us say the Lord of hosts over and again? Who said that also? Anybody? Haggai, come on, you guys, that was last week. Okay, everybody turn in your Bibles to Haggai. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, no, the saith the Lord of hosts thing is kind of an important deal. Um, and, and we talked about that. Uh, um, by the way, this uh, saith the Lord of hosts thing, it, it's like I talked about in Haggai, it, it's talking about armies. Remember this? Yes? Oh, good. I, I, was, I was thinking, was I at a different church when I was talking about that? Um, yeah, there's, there's two main things. When the Bible calls the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and the reason that's an important term is that's, that's the, the Lord that's coming back. That's the returning Christ, the Lord of hosts. And the idea is Lord of armies. Well, which armies? Both the armies of the heavenly angels and of maybe even you and me. Like when Christ returns, he's returning with 10,000s of his saints and that's us. Um, but mostly the host, heavenly host is, is referring to the angelic armies. You'll say, I'm not afraid of angels. You should be. Uh, think about Michael, think about, think about the book of Revelation. Remember there's an angel that stands on the earth in the book of Revelation who puts one foot in the ocean and one foot on the continent. <laughs> Um, and it's not like standing at the beach with one foot in the like like one foot like a mile out in the ocean and a, another foot mile inside the continent. Uh, these are big, amazing, powerful angels, and they're the, the armies that God commands. But the second thing is also the world's armies. God actually is the Lord over them as well. And one of the things when you read the Bibles, you realize God uses even worldly armies. Um, you know, we even in our story right here, the Lord used the Babylonian army to sort of correct the Jews uh, from their misdeeds and their sin. Um, and, uh, and we'll even read more about that uh, here in the book of Zechariah. Um, so Jesus' second coming, he's coming as uh, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, the conquering king. Um, this is where I don't, I can't really agree with my uh, friends that are, um, you know, believe in pacifism. Uh, because, uh, you know, the pacifists could say, well, the New Testament, we never see Jesus fighting anyone true, but we do see uh, God fighting people. And the Lord is a warrior, the Bible says, he's mighty in battle. And you say, well, that's God of the Old Testament. Same thing. Jesus and God are one. And don't forget, in the New Testament, Jesus reminds us that he's coming as a conquering king. 
Um, so this whole idea of pacifism and nobody ever fighting wars, like, like there's some people say we should have never fought wars. A true pacifist say we should have never intervened in the Holocaust in World War II and stopped Nazi, you know, Hitler. Um, I just can't agree with that. that uh, and I also can't agree if, if, um, if somebody breaks into my home and my family's at risk, uh, I'm not gonna just passively say, okay, here's my family, uh, have at it. Uh, that's, that's not the way the Lord's wired us. Um, and um, the Lord actually gives us, uh, there's, there's a case to be made for not just pure pacifism. Now there is a time to turn the other cheek. And I do worry sometimes that sometimes, maybe if we make a mistake, our kind of people here at Athey Creek, is um, there might be a t- tendency to say, well, we have the right to bear arms, which we do. And I'm, I'm for that. Um, and, but it's like, uh, it's almost like shoot first, then ask questions later. Like, like it's funny, we have this, this saying, kill them all. Uh, if that's your attitude, then that's not very much like Jesus. I'm just telling you right now. Um, uh, the, the idea is turn the other cheek uh, and, you know, there, but there is argument for, um, you know, defending one's family and, um, and I believe also defending one's country. And you can even make the argument of other people's safety and even your own neighborhood. Um, and those that believe in pure fat pacifism, I think they forget Romans chapter 13. Let's review that just for a second. <clears throat> it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, uh, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Question, when Paul wrote this to the Romans, who was the power that be who was in charge at that time? Caesar Nero, the most crazy world leader ever in the history, maybe of the world. You might argue even worse than Hitler and some of the others, uh, you know. Um, whosoever, verse two, therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid for he beareth not the sword in vain. Um, that's an interesting phrase there, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So, you know, it's amazing. We live in a world today that people are just so confused about, uh, you, know, you know, power and authority and stuff like that. And, well, what if the police uh, defund the police because th- there's corruption in the police forces? Oh, there, I'm sure there has been, and we've seen corruption in, in law enforcement but it's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent of law enforcement. And so in these last couple of years, we did this interesting experiment. What happens when you defund the police? Well, just look at our apocalyptic Portland. Uh, go downtown Portland and see what's happening. Um, I was in downtown today. And again, just shocked at how our beautiful city has really, it looks like uh, Armageddon down there. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but the idea of, of defunding police and law enforcement is not actually a biblical uh, notion. But the Bible actually calls the law enforcement officer a minister of God. Well, Brett, that's not a, that's not a, a, a minute. You're a minister of God. The Bible says law enforcement's a minister of God. Um, well, what if he's part of the Nero army? Doesn't, it doesn't matter. He's still called a minister of God. What if he's part of a you know, corrupt police department? He's still called in the Bible, a minister of God. And if our culture would go back to understanding that, um, then things would be so much better. Uh, but things are gonna continue to get worse and worse. Um, I have friends that are you know, law enforcement officers. We have a lot here at Athey Creek and 
We need to be praying for them. Uh, there's danger there because people are shooting police uh, left and right. Um, we're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. And if a law enforcement officer has to you know, uh, use power or the sword, if you would, uh, to resist the evil, <clears throat> then that law enforcement officer is scrutinized and sometimes uh, demonized. Um, uh, it's, it's amazing what uh, actually is happening here in Oregon. And um, a lot of our law enforcement people are leaving the state. Um, meanwhile, our homicide rate is skyrocketing in Oregon. Uh, and we wonder what's going on. Uh, we're just completely stupid and we lost our heads. Um, that's, that's the problem. The Bible tells us that the law enforcement and by the way, military um, is part of God's team. Uh, well, what if the military guy cusses still a minister of God? Uh, it doesn't say here that as long as it's not Nero's army or if these guys are carrying their King James Bible, it doesn't say that. It says that these guys that are the powers that be, they're ordained of God. I, I like how, you know, Romans 13 kind of takes away any goofy argument you might have. Um, the Bible leaves it airtight, shut right here, that <clears throat> if you don't agree with the uh, police, uh, tough bananas. Um, that's what the Bible says. Now, praise the Lord, we live in a culture that if the police get it wrong, you can you know, fight it in a, law, a court of law and you know, hope to get justice. Uh, but what if you don't get justice? Well, that's what happened to the church with the Roman Empire. The same people Paul's calling the ministers of God were persecuting the Christian church. So it's, it's amazing to me that we think that somehow we have an out on this one. <clears throat> but we need to remember uh, whatever we should do is be on, on God's side. Remember Abraham Lincoln's quote in response to a clergyman who ventured to say in front of Abraham that he hoped the Lord was on our side. Abraham said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side for God is always right. Um, and uh, that's, that's what we need to do. Um, and that's, by the way, in warfare with the United States, whether, you know, should the United States, big question everybody's wrestling with right now, should the United States, you know, intervene in Ukraine? And I know some of you feel strongly one way and some of you feel strongly the other. Um, and, um, and, you know, what should we do as a nation? And, and it's a huge question. It's the same thing we wrestled with, should we get involved in World War II? And we dragged our feet as a nation for a long time. And eventually we finally did involve ourselves once we saw what was and knew uh, what was really happening. And, and uh, we saw the gravity of the whole situation when the United States, both in World War I and World War II, we were, we were trying to not mess or meddle in those wars back in those days, if you know your history. Um, but there's a time where I think a nation does have to step in. And uh, that's the question right now we're wrestling with. And who, which side do you wanna be on? But all that to say, um, where was I? Verse two, oh yeah. We gotta, we gotta move. Um, so, so here in, in, uh, in verse two, it says, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Um, uh, the word sore is a double negative word. So like, it's not just that, I mean, he could have just said the Lord has been displeased, but the idea is sorely, sorely displeased. Um, the, the, a lot of times we miss the force of what's being said. It's sort of a double angry. It's almost like you're, he's angry about being so angry is the idea there. Um, so, so the Lord is sore displeased. Verse three, therefore say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye to me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn to you, saith the Lord of hosts. So this turn to me, the, 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 the word here is repent. Turn around, repent of your sins, go the opposite direction. It's the same word really as repent. And it reminds me there of James chapter four, verse eight, 
where the Lord reminds you and me. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near or draw nigh to you. Um, the Hebrew word, by the way, uh, for sin is an interesting word. It's kata and it means to miss the mark. Um, the word kata is used in the book of Judges, by the way. Um, it's talking about, um, like in the book of Judges, remember the guys that were able to use a sling and they could, they could sling a rock and split a hair on a man's head? Uh, that's pretty good accuracy uh, with a rock and a sling. Um, but the, the word they use is these guys would not kata, miss the mark is the idea, or miss the target, uh, because they were so talented with the sling. Sin is to miss the mark. Sin equals everything evil and anything that misses the bullseye of perfection. And so when we sin, then what we need to do is repent and turn. The word repent is an interesting uh, word. It, it means to turn the other direction. If you look it up in the Hebrew, the, um, the Hebrew word is an interesting uh, word. The word tshuva, um, which means to return. Uh, the Greek word in the New Testament is metanoia, uh, but it means to change your mind, do an uh, about face, uh, you know, reverse your, your current direction. So when we sin and mess up, we're supposed to turn back toward God. And that's really what God is asking the, the Jews here through Zechariah, turn to me. You're going the wrong direction. Turn to the Lord and I will, I will turn to you, saith the Lord of hosts. I love the responsiveness of the Lord. He says, man, all you gotta do is turn to me. And what will I do? I'll turn to you. Um, he's not you know, gonna play, play it hard to get. You know, If you turn to him and the Lord will say, well, we'll see if we like you anymore after your rebellion for all these years. The Lord's not like that. If you turn to me, then I will turn to you, saith the Lord of hosts. Interesting. Well, um, uh, we gotta remember that because you know, Paul the apostle, he, he knew what it was like when he struggled with his own sin. He said there, and Paul, uh, Paul said in Romans 7, verse 15, he said, for that which I do, uh, I allow not. For, um, uh, for what I, I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Does this sound relatable to any of you? A lot of you are like, no, I've actually got it all dialed in. <clears throat> no, you wouldn't say that, right? Like we struggle. Um, he says, man, that, how to perform that which is good? I, I don't know how to do that. Verse 19, for the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So um, Paul's admitting his own sin. His own, we talked about this on Sunday. That he, he, you know, what constitutes sin? Um, it's an amazing thing because you know, so many people think sin is, well, murder. And it is. Adultery, that is. But also having a sharp, perturbed, grouchy attitude is sin or thinking an ill thought of somebody driving on the road is sin. Um, you know, uh, having a uh, sharp word to your wife, that's sin. Having a disrespectful word to your husband, that's sin. Uh, it's amazing how we, we think, oh, I'm, not, I'm not a sinner. Oh, we're all real bad sinners. And it doesn't even have to be that bad. Um, so what do you do? You turn from that sin. So rather than having the sharp word toward your wife, you say a kind word to your wife. Instead of being disrespectful to your husband, you say something of respect to your husband. It's just, that's what repentance is. Just turn and do the opposite. 
If you're a teenager and your mom tells you to clean your room instead of grouchy and stomping off or whatever, you say, mom, I'd be happy to do that. You go off and clean your room. She'll, she'll pass out if you do that. Um, but uh, it, that's how you repent. You turn and do the opposite thing. By the way, one of the primary goals of prophecy in the Bible is repentance. Prophecy, one of the reasons prophecy is given, both the local application and the long-term application is that people repent. Prophecy, that's part of the deal. Um, so now um, here, um, we're gonna see a couple pieces here in this, in this call to repentance. First, Zechariah nails them on disobedience here in verse four. It says in verse four, be ye not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Man, this is talking about for generations. There's been generations of disobedience. Um, it's like the older people didn't hear the prophets that the Lord sent. Um, and more accurately, it's, it's saying they would not hear. It's not that they did not hear, they would not hear what the Lord said through the prophets. Um, it's interesting because that's what we have to decide. Are we gonna do what the Bible says? or are we going to rebel? And it's so easy to see this in Israel with Zechariah the prophet, and you know, yeah, these people, what a bunch of losers. They, God told them for centuries what to do, and for centuries they just said, we will not believe and follow. But then you have to kind of say, Lord, are there little things that you've told me to do that I've refused to do? Um, you know, uh, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives. How you doing, hubby? Um, well, that's, that's different. Nope, it's exactly the same. Are you repentant? Uh, wives, respect your husbands, the Bible says, and uh, submit to them. Who? I don't like that. That's just called rebellion. How long are we gonna rebel, husbands and wives? Uh, that's just something that's really a hard thing to do. The children, I, children of Israel, what they were doing, I would argue it would have been hard for them to do the right thing. But nonetheless, God called them to repentance, but they just were disobedient. And then not only were they disobedient, they, they would even try to delay. That's the second part of this in verse five. The delay that we see, check it out, verse five, it says, your fathers, um, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Um, he's saying, you know, you've procrastinated too long. How long are you gonna live? Um, don't delay, you know, do it now. Repent now is the idea. Um, you know, life goes by fast. If, you're, if you wanna be really morbid and weird, try this just for a second. If the average person lives to be say 79, um, which I think that's the number right now, um, how many more weekends do you have in your life? Because it's one thing to say how many more years or how many more days, but how many more weekends? Do the math on that and you might be a little shocked. And are you using the time? Well, the Bible says redeem the time for the days we live in are evil. Um, so many times, there's so many people with regrets of how they use their time. These guys just delayed for years and years and never really did what they were called to do. So, verse six, it says, but my words and my statutes which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Um, 
it's interesting. He's, he's basically saying, did they not take hold of your fathers? In other words, did they not overtake? Some of your margins say on that word, take hold. Did they not overtake? It's like a police officer stopping you with the red and blue lights uh, being pulled over. That's the idea. Um, he said, but my words and my statutes when I commanded you guys, didn't they take pull you over like a police officer is the idea? Um, and they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do us unto us according to our ways, according to our doing, so have dealt with us. Um, interesting, you know, um, it's interesting that these older people just said, nah, we're not gonna do what he says. And even with years going by, it, the truth caught up to them is the idea and took them over. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things we still need to learn is older people need to be teaching younger people. Um, and, and it's hard because young people don't wanna hear it from the old people. It's as old as the sun is, you know, just people, uh, old people making mistakes with their lives and then saying, you youngsters better listen to us. And the youngsters saying, yeah, whatever. And then they make the same exact mistakes. Uh, that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, the older people didn't learn and Zachariah saying, oh, the younger people should have been listening. Uh, and, and still he's, he's teaching repentance. He says, you know, uh, according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. So the idea is you need to repent. That's his theme. By the way, if you remember back when we were in the book of Joel, that was the theme of the book of Joel. Remember, he said, rend your heart, not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth of the evil. Uh, remember that word repent is like relent of the evil, uh, the judgment, the wrath. Um, but the idea here is interesting. Um, there's an external appearance of repentance where they were ripping their garments, but that wasn't real repentance. They needed an, an internal repentance, which is more of a rending of the heart or working on your heart, your inner self uh, to have true repentance. And that's the problem. The people went through all the motions of repentance, but they weren't really repenting. And Zachariah is calling them out. Now, um, this is where, uh, after verse six now, uh, verse seven is where it's, we start with the, the beginning of the eight visions or dreams of Zechariah. So that was the first part, all this disobedience and a call to repentance there in the first six verses. But in verse seven now, we get to this vision. And um, by the way, one thing you should know about in Zechariah here, um, these, um, these visions, each vision that we read has sort of a pattern to it. Um, and, and I'm gonna tell you, some of these visions are really hard and weird. I'm just gonna tell you right now. And some of them are really hard to understand. I'm just gonna say it. Um, but if you are looking for some interesting things about these visions, first of all, there's a pattern that you'll see that each vision does possess. And you can kind of look for these patterns. Uh, the first pattern that you see is the, uh, every vision has sort of some introductory words about the vision. And then the second piece is it gives a description of what he saw. Um, the description of what he saw in his vision. And then, um, then there's sort of a, always in each vision, there's a question as to what the meaning, it's, it's almost like there's gonna be a question to an angel. What is the meaning of this vision? Um, and then fourthly, there's an explanation from an angel. And, and each one of the visions, if you look for these things, it'll help you sort of understand the eight visions of Zechariah. And remember, all these happened in one night. He must have had some serious spicy pizza before the night, before he went to bed that night, or it was the Holy Spirit. I think it was the Holy Spirit. Um, but, um, but keep this little list in, in the back of your head as you're looking at these visions. Introductory words, description, question, explanation is sort of the pattern here, and that's gonna be helpful. The first vision, we're gonna call this, um, this first vision, 
the rider in the myrtle trees. Um, uh, and uh, let's take a look, verse seven. It says in verse seven, upon the fourth and 20th day of the 11th month, in the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet saying. Now, before we hear the vision, a couple of things, months about, that's February 15th, 519 BC is when he received this. So um, now, um, again, if you're following these dates, take into account the Babylonian calendar and the lunar calendar and all that. Um, here's the question. Why does Zechariah and Haggai, <coughs> why do both of these guys record meticulously each date, this precise date of each vision? The answer, I don't have any idea. <laughs> but I feel like we're missing something. Um, so there's your assignment. Uh, try to figure out why is Zachariah so obsessed with the exact date of each vision? Because I'm convinced that in the Bible, there's nothing there that's just meant to be, oh, well, man, he's just stupid about dates. Uh, that's not the way the Bible works. When you see something, you're like, that's so unnecessary. Usually, not only is it necessary, but it usually has something of huge meaning. And I've just never come across any commentator or theologian or, or pastor or sermon that actually says why these dates are so important. And I haven't figured it out. So maybe you can. But um, these, it is amazing to me that each date is so meticulously uh, recorded here. Uh, so some reason to maybe pray about it, search the scriptures. Maybe the further down the road we get, we'll know more why Zachariah recorded these uh, dates with such precision. But, um, but anyway, uh, back to the writer uh, in the maple tree vision. Here we go, verse eight. He says, I saw by night and behold a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were there red horses, speckled and white. So the first, the first thing we see here in this vision is a rider, the description of a, a man riding on a red horse. Red in the Bible is a symbol of war and judgment. Revelation 19.11 talks about that. Um, and Isaiah 63 Verses one through six associates red with the concept of war and judgment. Um, judgment, of course, red being the blood of Christ on Calvary, the judgment for our sins and uh, what have you. But, but also the book of Revelation associates the, the, the color red with warfare and judgment. So kind of keep that in mind. And then also we have here a myrtle tree. Now, when you go to Israel, one of the fun things, uh, Myrtlewood uh, tree, is you go to Israel and um, the Israeli uh, tour guides love to tell us about Israeli Myrtlewood and how it's the only place in the world where you can find Myrtlewood. And, and you go to the Myrtlewood stores and all throughout Jerusalem, there's these Myrtlewood stores and stuff. And uh, none of my Israeli tour guides, except for one now, uh, knows that actually there's only one other place in the world where you can find Myrtlewood like in Israel. Does anybody know where that's at? Oregon, <laughs> where we live, uh, as it turns out. Um, now, I do have to say, you might argue that the Oregonian myrtlewood trees um, might be a different species, and I'll tell you why. Um, and, and you people that are into plants and shrubs and trees and stuff, you could probably do a deeper study on this. But um, uh, this is a picture of a myrtlewood tree uh, here in Oregon. And, um, and it, it, if you'll notice, it's pretty huge. 
There's nothing this huge in Israel. The average myrtlewood tree in Israel is like six feet tall. It's like, they're just short little uh, myrtlewood trees. But they, you know, when people come from tours, they always bring the little wooden carved, you know, nativity scenes or myrtlewood crosses or myrtlewood. They, that's, that's because that's the big thing is everybody get, buys the myrtlewood carved, you know, from in Jerusalem there. And there's some really cool carvings and stuff that they've done. But it just cracks me up that Oregon actually is the only other place in the world where myrtle wood actually grows. Um, for you that are interested, the word myrtle is the Hebrew word hadas or hadasah, which is the word Esther. Uh, her name meant like myrtle, uh, which is funny. You could call her myrtle. Uh, that's not a name we use very much anymore. Maybe your great grandmother was named Myrtle, uh, but uh, not, not. But but Esther, it's kind of interesting. You say, how is Esther's name Myrtle? How does that apply? Did you know that? that I'm probably getting off course too much here, but did you know that the Myrtle trees, Myrtlewood trees, there in Israel, they blossom once a year. But if you crush the um, blossom, it puts out this beautiful fragrance. Uh, the Myrtlewood tree does uh, the f- blossom itself. And um, it's kind of an interesting type of Hadassah or Esther, who uh, during time of real crushing, she lived in a terribly dangerous time for such a time as this kind of thing. And yet during time of crushing, this beautiful fragrance came from this woman, uh, Hadassah or Myrtle, Miss Myrtle. Uh, but um, but uh, it's kind of cool. Um, they used Myrtle wood to build their, their tabernacle. Um, um, they used the wood as an air freshener because uh, the wood is very, it's almost like our cedar here that smells really nice. Um, but uh, um, all that to say, uh, myrtle, the myrtle tree, like the fig tree, uh, is sort of a symbol of Israel itself in this particular dream. I'll give you the kind of the heads up there. So you got the vision here of the, of the rider in the myrtle trees. Uh, and let's read on and see what it says here. It says here in verse nine, then I said, oh my Lord, what are these? This is the question. Um, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show you what these be. Verse 10, the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. Verse 11, and they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro on the earth and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. So, so right now we've got a few things going on here. We've got these other horses with the man, speckled. Um, some of your translations, does it say, instead of speckled, what does it say, brown? Yes. Um, the reason why there's disagreement, nobody knows what the Hebrew word for speckle, or the, the word that's translated as speckled here, nobody really knows what that word means. So there's like a Hebrew word that nobody knows what it means. So they say brown, speckled, uh, polka dot, whatever. They, they just don't really know for sure. So there's a big debate on what that Hebrew word actually is uh, that's in that verse. But the point is there's these, um, these other, um, you know, that are behind the, the man riding the red horse that's standing amongst the myrtlewood tree. And one was red, uh, one was speckled or brown or, or whatever your margin says, perhaps, um, uh, and also white. So you say, okay, the description here is a man on a red horse standing among myrtle trees with other colored horses by him. You got the vision so far? It's like one of my dreams, Pastor Brad, one of those weird dreams. Uh, yeah, so the question, the explanation comes in verse 10, um, you know, uh, who this is. Um, now, it's interesting, who, who is walking to and fro? Does anybody remember somebody else that was going to and fro? 
Satan. That's an interesting thing that, that, that the fallen angel Satan does, but that's not to be mistaken with these angels. These, I believe, are angels that were sent by the Lord, but they're doing the same thing for a different reason. Satan's going to and fro over all the earth to see who he can devour. But these angels are, are sort of inspecting what's going on over the earth and they sort of report to what is called here the angel of the Lord. Now, whenever you come across the angel of the Lord there, um, in verse 11, it says, they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees. That tells us who this is. Anybody wanna take a bold guess? Who's the angel of the Lord here? It's Jesus. Uh, it's, uh, the, whenever that phrase angel Lord, it usually, I should say usually, most of the time, it's a uh, speaking of the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, some are afraid to call it a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but uh, um, some people call it a theophany or it could be called a Christophany, uh, Old Testament appearing of Jesus. And we see that in several places throughout the Old Testament. But this angel of the Lord is the one standing among the myrtle trees. Um, and um, and, he, and he, he's hearing what these guys have to say as they are looking over all the earth. Well, let's continue in verse 12 and see uh, what, what's going on here. It says in verse 12, and then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against um, which thou hast indignation these three score and 10 years? How long is three score and 10 years, King James? 70 years. So what are we talking, what, what period are we talking about when we're talking about 70 years, anybody? Right, the captivity in Babylon, how long? There's this rhetorical question, how long is Israel gonna sit in captivity? That's what Zechariah's referring to. Um, and this, this gets a little confusing because it, you know, we, we hear uh, there in verse 11, it says the, the angels are going all over, uh, walking to and fro, and they're seeing that the earth sits still and is at rest. And you guys, and I might be tempted to say, well, that's good. Anytime the world at rest or at peace, that's good. But that's not good in this case. How is that not good? That's what we need right now. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Merry Christmas. Um, but that's not what's going on here. Here's, I'm gonna just kind of fast forward and tell you what's going on here. What, what the angels are saying, well, the whole world's at rest while the Jews are in captivity. God's people are in captivity and in trouble. While the Jews are in trouble, everybody else is at peace and happy and surrounded with calm and all that stuff, you know? And, um, and why allow the bad nations to be at peace when they continually attack and harass the Jews? That's the question that these sort of angels are gonna ask. And it seems to me that God is watching how the other nations uh, and people treat the Jews. Does anybody remember what's the name of the judgment where God's gonna judge the nations of how they treat the Jews? Yeah, the sheep and the goats judgment, right? G Jesus talked about that in uh, Matthew 24. There's an official judgment just for that, how nations treat the Jews. Um, and so the Lord is saying, um, how long, or, you know, the angels are saying, how long, oh Lord, is this, this gonna be where everybody else is at peace, but the Jews are in trouble. So it goes on there in verse 13. It says, and the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words, so the angel that commanded with me said, uh, said unto me, cry thou, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Okay, now here's where we have to talk about what the word jealousy means. Is God, does he have a human characteristic that he's jealous of us? Is he jealous of people in this story? 
Well, it says he's jealous, but he's not jealous of, he's what? He's jealous for the Jewish people and he's hurting for his own kids. Um, and uh, even though they're little rascals, even though they've sinned, even though they've done bad things, God still loves them and has a plan for them. You parents know how this is. You know, you, you love your kids, even if they did get a bad report card, even if the teacher at school gives a bad report about their behavior, you still hear bad stuff, you still love them. And you still feel defensive somewhat toward them. That's just a knee jerk reaction. But the Lord in his holy behavior, he still has a love for the people of Israel. And so when these nations treat his kids badly, God says, I am jealous for you. And he's very clear about that. Um, God is watching and he's keeping score is kind of what you might add to that. Um, that's something to keep in mind. Boy, um, I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but prophecy update uh, right now, just a quick one. Watch out what's going on. Everybody's worried about Putin and Ukraine and, the, and you know, you're saying, Brad, I think it's the, he's Satan because he launched Satan today. Did you see Putin launch Satan today? <laughs> he put out a new missile, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile that has, I think, a range of over 6,000 miles and can travel 16,000 miles per hour, something like that. But they, you know, Putin named his rocket Satan. Um, now this cracks me up. I wonder if they're in a meeting and they're like, what are we gonna call it? He's like, Satan? Like, uh, like I picture Putin and the church lady sitting there from Saturday Night Live. It's like, what are you gonna call your missile? Satan? Um, anyway, I'm, I'm weird, I know, but uh, they're saying it's, you know, Putin's claiming it's, it's got 12 warheads on this single missile and um, it's the worst missile ever created by man and he's threatening anyone who messes with them. And um, so the world's all focused on, you know, Satan and Putin and the Ukrainian problem. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Israel, Israel's hanging on by their fingernails trying to ride this difficult line between Russia and Putin and what he's doing and the fact that the, the Russians are starting to threaten Israel. And for you Bible prophecy buffs, that's more important in some ways, prophetically speaking. I'm not saying geopolitically as much, but prophetically, uh, there's nothing really about the Russian in, in invasion of Ukraine. I don't see that in the Bible, but I do see what, what's being shaping up and, and the world's not even noticing right now what's going on with Israel. Uh, but keep an eye on that. That's, I think it's almost like uh, Putin's over here having the world look at this. Meanwhile, he's doing a bunch of stuff over here that nobody really is watching. Uh, but I digress. Um, the Lord says, I am jealous for Israel. And so verse 15, he says, um, and I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased and they helped forward the affliction. In other words, God used the Babylonians to punish his people, correct them, but then they took it too far. And remember, what was one of the things that made the Lord most angry with these nations that he used to discipline the Jews? It's after the fact they would celebrate, ha ha, those stupid Jews, look what happened. And God says, I see that, I'm gonna judge you for that. God says, I'm gonna judge you. So even though the Lord used these nations, um, once their attitude became overconfident and uh, and the Lord says, I was okay with it, but then you helped your the affliction even worse than what I had planned, verse 15. Verse 16, therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, uh, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Verse 16 is a promise of several things, uh, all in a fatal blow. Here the Lord says three main things that I'm gonna do. Number one, I'm gonna promise the Messiah. 
That's what he's saying here. When he says, I am returned, I'm gonna return to Jerusalem with mercy. That's Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. I hope you see that. Uh, This is the dual fulfillment. Christ is gonna come to Jerusalem, both when he was slain on a cross, uh, rose from the grave, like we talked about on Sunday, but he's also coming again, the second coming. Also, his house shall be built, both um, you know, with the first coming and the second coming. There's a, a new house temple being built. That's what he says here. And then thirdly, the boundaries shall be enlarged. And it's interesting because Jerusalem's boundaries were enlarged from both in Zechariah's time, but also in today's time. And then the time that Christ is gonna come, his second coming, Jerusalem will be enlarged uh, than it, even more than what it is today. Um, it's funny because one of the big disputes in the world is the land around Jerusalem. And the nations freak out over the Jews being in Jerusalem. That discussion is gonna be over uh, when Christ comes, the second coming. The whole land for peace thing will be out the window and the Jews and God will take over all of Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says. So in verse 17, cry yet saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Um, you know, the Lord's saying, don't worry. I know you're sitting in desolation and ruin, but I'm gonna fix this. And I'm gonna, and he, and he gives us these massive prophecies. The, so the writer is sitting in the myrtle tree. The writer is Jesus. The myrtle tree is Israel. The, the, um, the angels going on these other horses and stuff are going to and fro seeing how the world is treating the Jews. But the answer that comes is the Lord is gonna um, come back. He's gonna restore Jerusalem, gonna restore the temple, and, he's gonna, and he still loves the Jews and he still cares about them. Um, and that's where we're gonna to end tonight. But there's only a few more verses. But did you know, in the Hebrew Bible, this is the end of chapter one. And uh, chapter two begins uh, in verse 18. And it makes sense to me because that's gonna be vision number two. Now I was planning on going through all of eight, eight visions tonight, um, <laughs> but because I took way too long, <laughs> I'm only gonna do the first one. And we will pick up the vision of uh, verse uh, uh, 18 and onward next week. But before you pack it up, just remember um, that God has not forsaken his people, the Jews. Um, he still has a plan for Jews and Israel. He's chosen them, he's comforting them, he's gonna prosper them. And the reason that's important is because you are also a chosen child of God if you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ, you are, you are grafted into the vine of Israel where God chooses you. And he also comforts you and he's got a plan and, and will prosper you in his time. It may not look like it right now. You might be like that time going, Lord, where are you and what's going on? But the Lord, he's faithful to the Jew. See, that's one of the most uh, sinister parts of replacement theology. Those that say that God's done with the Jews because they were so bad, God says, yeah, the Jews are no longer my people, now it's the church. And, And they believe the church has replaced Israel. Horrible theology. And the number one reason I think that replacement theology is so wicked is number one, it makes God a liar. Because God made an everlasting covenant with the Jews where he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, even though the Jews have sinned, I'm gonna scatter them, I'm gonna judge them, I'm gonna correct them, but I will not forsake them. I've made an everlasting covenant based not on who the Jews are, but who I am. Um, and his Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. And here's the problem if you're saying, well, God reneged on that covenant, then you need to say, well, then what keeps him from going back on his promise to you? 
If, if God forsakes the Jew, why wouldn't he forsake you? Because you and I have given plenty of reason for God to say, nah, I'm kind of tired of Brett. He's just a little sinner and he just keeps sinning and still, he's not truly repentant. So like the Jews, I'm gonna totally forsake him. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God we believe in. He will never leave you or forsake you. It's one of the things he's saying here in chapter one of Zechariah that the Lord says, I have a plan for my people. And even though everything's, everybody else is living in peace while the Jews are in captivity, I'm gonna restore, I'm gonna rebuild and I'm gonna bless my people. Um, that's a, a covenant we should remember for the Jews, but we also can apply to our own lives. The Lord loves us and he will not forsake us. That's good news for you and for me, amen? Amen. Lord, we are thankful for your word. And as we uh, look at the book of Zechariah, pray that you'd give us, Lord, um, more understanding of just your nature and your character. Um, we see how you had a plan and a purpose and, and so many intricacies to what was happening here with the Jews. Um, I pray that your plan would unfold in our lives, Lord, in these days that we're living. Lord, we seem to see that these days we're living in right now are like Zechariah's time. Only the latter fulfillment of prophecy as the days get closer to the time where you intervene and you restore Jerusalem and, re and rebuild the millennial kingdom temple. Lord, we look forward to that day. But until then, I pray that we just be faithful, following you, walking with you, Lord, serving you. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, I pray. So bless these, your people, who've taken this time on a Wednesday night to study your word. May it bring forth good fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.